Welcome to our Market Narrative series. I'm Julia Newbold, Managing Editor at Connexus Financial. Today I'm talking to Alex Kosler, Portfolio Manager in the Emerging Markets and Asia Equities team at Newton Investment Management. Newton Investment Management uses active, thematic and engaged investment to deliver attractive outcomes to clients and to help foster a healthy and vibrant world. Thanks so much for joining me today, Alex. Uh, thanks, thanks very much for having me. Now, volatility has been a theme of 2022 as markets and economies continue to be influenced by COVID, energy transition, wars and inflation. With this backdrop, emerging markets has been a bridge too far for many investors, but Newton and yourself suggest that it could be a good place. So, Alex, while many investors are looking to de-risk their portfolios right now, why do you believe emerging markets might be a good place to invest? Sure. So, uh, we... I guess we th- we think that it can pay in moments like right now to take a step back and keep thinking both long term and and quite simply. So so what are we talking about when we talk about emerging markets? It's a heterogeneous, uh, almost dazzlingly heterogeneous group of countries where about four in every five people on the planet live today. Uh, an even higher proportion of the world's young population live in these countries, and they account for about fifty percent of global GDP. All of that is serviced by about 10% of equity allocations in the world today. And and, and we think that's a pretty stark disparity. Uh, We also think Newton's um, uh, a place where sustainable investment is very core to what we do. And and when you're thinking about investing sustainably, what makes it even more striking is that two-thirds of the world's investment needs for a sustainable future, according to the UN, need to happen in developing countries. And again, there's this huge disparity between where investment is most needed and, uh, and, and again, equity allocation is a little over 10%. When, even when we look at sustainability funds today, uh, there's a recent report saying that close to 90% of them are either global or developed market sustainability funds. And, and again, yet again, we, we really think that, that uh, those, uh, the emerging markets um, uh, is somewhere where capital is scarce versus its need. And how do you go about choosing where to invest? So we we like to start bottom up. We we start to we like looking at companies. Um, we the way that the way that we choose which companies we think are really providing solutions to those those sustainability problems I highlighted the world is is facing is, is we like to ask three questions about those companies. Um, the first is the context of what the what what the what need the company is addressing. The second is whether the comp is, is around additionality, so whether the company is really uh, providing a, a, a new or, or innovative solution to that problem. And the third is uh, the third is management purpose. So we, we try to identify um, the whether we're in a company where uh, you can feel alignment, integrity, and competence of the people running it, and where, where the people running it will keep that company focused on those on those on those needs that I was talking about before. Obviously, even though we start bottom up, you can hear for other questions that that we want to ask the the regions and the industries that a company operating is, is quite important. Um, for, for context, we, we think that 
companies that are looking to solve environmental problems or companies that are looking to solve healthcare problems, even companies that are looking to solve problems of, uh, of financial underpenetration. Those are ones where, where the, the industry starts to matter um, and also where, where the country starts to matter. To be very basic, a company selling insecticide in India is, is obviously going to be one set against a better context. Uh, again, with ad additionality, it starts to it starts to get more more about whether um, a company is is reinvesting its capital in in a way that either lowers pricing to consumers or or, or provides a particularly innovative solution or reaches a new reaches a new group. Um, so you can see quite quickly how uh, things like regions, things like industries. Uh, things like management that are, that are, you know, traditional things that people look at when they when they invest start to play into that framework. Alex, is it more difficult when you're looking at emerging markets to separate the wheat from the chaff? Yeah, I, I think it. I think it really can be. I think that we. Uh, one of the things that uh, often gets highlighted to us when, or asked of us when, when we're talking about sustainability investing in emerging markets is, how, how do you know? You know how how can you be sure how how um when there's when there's limited data or limited um reporting how can you really differentiate between companies um i think that you know we we think that there's a few answers to that question one is to the, those more holistic questions that i was asking about the what the company does whether it whether it does it in a way that's additional to the problem and uh or solves the problem, as it were, and, or, and whether management's aligned. We think that's one way of doing it. But the second thing I'd point out is that when we, we do think there's enough data now to start, uh, as long as you work hard and you keep plugging away, to start really trying to track company progress uh, on whether they're, whether they're delivering versus those, those sustainability goals. Um, the final thing I'd say is um, a, a tool that we use in in as you said a difficult environment is is engagement so uh active engagement on sustainability issues in emerging markets can help drive companies in a positive direction just because emerging market companies are not inundated with um ri analysts uh making requests as i said it's a it's a you know under uh under penetrated part of the market so you can with small soft touches start to make big changes and and even if you can't, what you can start to do is uh, analyze those analyze those companies by their responses to what you're doing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not necessarily easy, but we think that you know there's data, there's growing data available. Um, you just have to keep plugging away, and uh, through tools like engagement, we have a fantastic um, engagement and sustainability team here at, at Newton, and and they really help us understand how companies are responding to these to these issues even even if they don't necessarily have all of the uh data as as perfectly laid out as, as you might find uh, elsewhere in the world and as things change in the markets is there a need to stay disciplined in this type of investment to really reap the rewards yes i i think i think that there i think that there is um i think that you you need to what what, what do you mean by what do you mean by um what do you mean by as things change, is it necessary to stay Well, disciplined? I guess as countries change and the wars happen and different countries might become um, ruled by different 
um, political factions, do you keep disciplined in the companies that you're investing in or is that all something that you're going to be thinking about maybe moving or paying extra consideration to? Sure. So I think that there's two ways of looking at it. The first is um, that, like you pointed out, we're, we're investing across a wide range of uh, geopolitical or or uh, institutional backdrops. Um, and the first is, is, is to um, try and get some sense of where those uh, institutions are weakest that um, might present some of those risks that you talk about. Uh, as it happens, where those institutions are weakest, it's, it's often... Uh, it often feeds into the bottom-up analysis as well, because where you have uh, weak institutions that can result in uh, things like kleptocracy and things like war, uh, they're often not great environments for uh, businesses that are looking to try and sustainably solve uh, unaddressed needs in a society. Uh, they tend to those sorts of environments tend to lend themselves better towards businesses that are uh, are, are rent-seeking or or uh, um, uh, a, a more sort of kleptocratic by nature. So on the on the one hand, we think that, you know, some to some extent, the bottom-up process helps you avoid those sorts of areas and, and keeps you disciplined away from them. On the other hand, as you said, you sort of have to remain humble in your own uh, 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 ability to be proven wrong over these uh, over these things, particularly as, as um, uh, a bottom-up investor. And for that reason, being at an institution that's well-resourced, um, like Newton, is, is, a, is a real privilege. We've got geopolitical teams that uh, keep us abreast of where these risks are, uh, are really starting to flare up, um, as, well as, as well as teams that invest in different asset classes, so have um, views that are more uh, macroeconomic uh, in nature. Um, so, so, yeah, it's a, I think it's a combination of both. So to just explain again, you look at the companies first and then the industries they're working in and then you'll overlay that with the geopolitical um, information that you, you have. I think that's a fair summary, yeah. Um, I think that we really like to start at a company level, but obviously the the industry in the region where a company, and none of these companies operate in isolation, so the industry in a region that a company operates in is always going to affect its ability to to be a real solution provider in the way that we want. And you said um, earlier that you had a three-bucket strategy for when you're investing in a company. Can you explain that for us? So do you, the so the company that we we try to ask quite holistic questions around uh, the context of an under-addressed need in emerging markets, the company's additionality. Uh, so whether the company is uh, really providing a solution to that context um, uh, and management purpose. So I'll dive into each three. You know, in context, what we're trying to understand is the severity of the issue being addressed. And we, we try to gauge, you know, whether foods versus medicines versus travel and, you know, whether uh, some, some needs are sort of um, more uh, oppressing than others. Uh, we, we look at the regional context. So, um uh, whether there's, you know, there's certain parts of the world where uh, there's uh, huge problems with um, uh, mortality or healthcare. There are some parts of the world where there are problems with uh, financial financial underpenetration, and even within emerging markets, there are big variations between 
those uh, under-addressed needs. So we, we try to keep in mind the regional context. And then the third, third thing with context that we try to understand is around negative externalities. So an example of that would be in lithium extraction, are the water intensity and biodiversity risks uh, implied by lithium acceptable for the benefits derived from the lithium itself? Uh, or in, in hydropower, are there some of the environmental negative externalities uh, uh, acceptable for some of the positive externalities of, of um of, of cheaper and more renewable power. So a, a deep, nuanced understanding of those contexts can equip us to best identify the most secure avenues for sustainable growth in, in, in emerging markets. But once you've understand that con understood that context, you then need to try and understand whether the company, and you move to the second bucket of whether the company is actually providing a better solution to that context. So you can't just say it sits in a specific industry or specific country. Um, you, you have to actually identify whether the company provides a better solution. So to that, you again need to start digging around some important questions, uh, such as are the company's products and services better, just better than or less expensive than alternatives? Um, is the company reaching underserved customers, uh, maybe by enhanced distribution or progressive pricing? Uh, is, is, is a company... Um, uh, involved in establishing uh, industry-leading research and development, so new solutions or enha enhanced existing ones. Um, and to the point around that I mentioned in the first one in context around negative externalities, when you look at company additionality, you can start to try and identify if a company is leading or lagging its industry in addressing some of those negative externalities. So the, the interesting thing about the second bucket in company additionality is that it starts to point us as sustainability investors to those companies where um, both durable growth and also sustainable competitive advantages are being built. It starts to link us uh, towards what traditional investors might call moats around a business. Um, because if you can find companies that are really providing additionality, you are starting to identify why a company might generate excess returns as well as growing along with these, um, these industries. Um, the third bucket that, that I talked about was management purpose. Um, and here, we're, we're, we're trying to find alignment, integrity, and competence uh, of people at, at the company, particularly the owners and senior leadership at the company. Uh, this is important for a number of things, but firstly, to make sure that the business stays trained on that sustainable growth opportunity that I talked about before. Um, but the, the, sec the, sec the second reason, you know, the... the, the the second reason is to that good owners and good managers often nurture and replenish the franchise strength in that company additionality that I talked about before uh, by driving good capital allocation or driving good corporate culture. All of these things feed into um, that company additionality. And then finally, good managers tend to bring minority shareholders along for the ride uh, without ripping off other stakeholders. Uh, and bad managers often do the opposite. You know, assessing management purpose is very hard uh, and, it's, and it's very qualitative, but we do think it's critical uh, along with all three of these buckets. Um, uh, and we also think why it's, it's why it's important to have uh, a team of investors um, that are, are trained uh, or, have, or have different backgrounds, uh, are trained across a, a wide degree of sort of uh, skill sets because some of these more qualitative things are, uh, are difficult for investors trained to build spreadsheets. Um, Equally, some of the more uh, quantitative things are uh, 
would be uh, difficult to to come to terms with if if you just had people that that wanted to look at people. Um, Alex, do you have and the final thing I'd say? Sorry, sorry, you go. No, you go. Do you have any examples of where um, being closer to the management of a company has turned you off that company, and you've you know everything else has been pointing towards it being a great investment, but you found out something that you thought, oh, can't go there. Yeah, you know, I, I think I'm not sure I'm uh, allowed to mention individual uh, businesses, but I can perhaps um, give examples both ways. You know, the, there's uh, so the solar industry is one that that's um, going to be immensely important for renewable energy and uh, the cost profile of solar is making it um, incredibly exciting for people that that um, are, are interested in the renewable future. But one of the things that uh, we we often find in 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 solar companies is that we we find it difficult to find companies who are really committed to innovating down the cost curve. Um, uh, some companies are just there to empire build, and some companies uh, are more interested uh, uh, in scale for scale's sake rather than really identifying where they can. Um, uh, improving in the industry's cost profile uh, by doing specific things around innovation. There's a specific solar company that was founded by four university students who came up with a new way of uh, developing um, wafers within solar cells. And they went to every solar company in the industry and said, hey, we have this new technology. And every solar company in the industry said, no, we're, we're not interested um, because... Uh, they they were sort of so invested in their own technology, and these four these four students they, they were students set up their own business uh, and dedicated uh, dedicated themselves to sort of innovating to try and lower the cost of of that specific part of the solar chain, and as a result and because of the culture that they've built they've they've managed to today build one of the more successful solar firms. It's a firm we we really like and really uh, can get behind because we can identify how the management have. Uh, have built a, a built a franchise that that really seeks to solve for a problem, um, rather than just sort of hoping that if they allocate capital to this area they'll they'll grow. Um, and we think that's a more sort of defensible uh, position in in an exciting industry. In terms of one ones on the other side, where you know you have you have businesses that uh, might. Uh, be set against a good industry backdrop and may even um, sometimes uh, provide uh, uh, bits of additionality in terms of providing solutions. There, there are, there are um, heaps of examples and there are some pretty big ones in emerging markets where the revenue mapping of the company might, might work well, but where the uh, owners or the management of that company really found themselves in that industry because of some sort of patronage or um, some sort of link to... Uh, a government that wasn't because of their competence; it was because of um, other things. And and we we tend to believe that in the very long run, those those businesses um, are more likely to be found out. Um, and and as a result, we find it harder to commit capital to them on behalf of our clients for the long term. Uh, I won't go into any, any examples too specifically, but um, maybe one for another time. Thank you for that. Are there any uh, particular regions that you would avoid investing in? Yeah, so I think it speaks to the point you raised earlier about uh, geopolitics. Um, we, the way that we like to think about regions is 
is really around the institutional strength of those environments. Um, and there, there are certain countries where the institutions have developed in such a way that they don't really incentivize uh, people to innovate and then reinvest in that innovation. They don't really incentivize companies to uh, address some of the problems that society faces. Instead, they incentivize rent-seeking or, or um, they incentivize sort of knowing the right person in order to um, get what you can out of, out of a particular economy. Um, you know, for, the, for that reason, we found it difficult to invest place, in places like Nigeria, um, which even though, you know, has a very large population that have a lot of underserved needs, we found it difficult um, given the institutional backdrop and the uh, macroeconomic backdrop to find uh, businesses that that uh, tickle three boxes for uh, us bottom up. And, and you know, our, our macroeconomic teams make it clear to us that that also feeds through to the, the macro side of things. Um, yeah, there, there are a few other examples in emerging markets that where where that 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 proves difficult to um uh yeah but but uh, but i'll stop i'll stop i'll stop there i think you probably get the idea um can you explain your investment methodology for us your stock picking and your attention to esg investing how do you know you're getting the right information um for the companies that you're looking at Sure. So I think that um, one of the, I think I spoke to this a, a, a little bit earlier, but, yeah. but one of the, one of the key criticisms of um, sustainability investing is that there's not enough data available to really know if the outcome you're hoping for is, is coming true. Um, what, what we would say to that is, is uh, that, that we think actually once you, get to grips with with it uh firstly you know that data is improving um uh india and china now actually report uh, the majority of the companies do some sort of sustainability reporting but the quality is varied but but there's steps being made in the right direction um and often not just in that sustainability reporting but if you really dig and you have the resources we're very lucky at newton to have a very large and and uh, very effective ri team if you have the resources you can start to dig around in company disclosure for, for bits of data and bits of information that can either corroborate or disprove what you're looking for, be that how much installed capacity you have as a solar company or uh, the microloans that you're, that you're giving out as a financial company and crucially what, what interest rate you're, you're making, you're, you're making people pay on those loans. Uh, the number of, uh, if you're a, a hospital, the number of chemotherapy cycles you perform, some certain hospitals report report that. So, so there are a number of different ways that, even though they might they might not be um, all encompassing and, and perfect pieces of information, you can get these uh, uh, fragments of data that you, as long as you're well resourced enough, can start to piece together uh, pictures on whether whether companies are moving in the right direction. Um, so in terms of in terms of our ESG process, you know. We, we have a uh, large and, and now fairly detailed uh, spreadsheet that we use uh, both to inform ourselves and also to inform our, our interactions with the companies. We uh, sort of keep plugging away at trying to figure out uh, if, we, if, we were, if we had the right idea. 
Alex, can you give us a bit about your own history? How long have you been working in the emerging markets area and what are the trends that you've seen during that time? Sure. So I've I've been I've been doing this about 10 years, so I'm still pretty pretty early in my in my journey. Uh, but but it's been in a space that's really growing and it's been a fantastically interesting time to to be here. Uh, in terms of trends or What's what's changing? I, I think I think early sustainability investing was often more aligned with um, with sort of starting to put companies in boxes and arguably simply box ticking. So you you had companies that would maybe find their way into sustainability funds simply because they just got their first on disclosure or they got their first on on. Uh, Certain metrics like carbon emissions or 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 uh, uh, demographic ratios in their in their management teams or their ownership. Um, I think that uh, you know I'm thinking of a particular example there that that made it. There was one company in Latin America that made its way to the top of every. When I, uh, this is years ago now, seven or eight years ago, but it was a very successful company that made its way to the top of every sustainability oriented fund in Latin America and. It was because it ticked a lot of those boxes I was talking about, but but the way that they they made their money and the, the way they made profits was was driven by a cozy relationship with the with their their specific regulator, um, and that specific relationship with the regulator broke down uh, again without naming the company. But, but uh, and it, as soon as that relationship broke down, so did the profitability and the growth profile of the company. Um, and it did badly as an investment. And I remember going around Latin America um, uh, fairly early in my career and people talking, using it as an example of why sustainability investing didn't work. And, and I remember thinking, I didn't, I didn't think that it was an argument against sustainability investing itself. I think it was just um, an argument about how uh, by simplifying sustainability too much um, into certain metrics or certain ratios, and not thinking holistically about businesses that actually you can get dragged into companies that don't really uh, don't really fit what we what we really uh, are thinking about when we when we when we try to identify companies that are addressing some of the the sustainability problems that the world faces today. That was an incredibly long sentence. Sorry. And uh, <laughs> Alex, um, hopefully, hopefully, I got the message across. In, in your time in the emerging markets. Um, Area are there different regions that people have favoured? Is um, is there more focus on one thing than another that you've found? Uh, yeah, I think you know uh, regions have come and gone out of favour. So I, I think I think sometimes that's uh, just to do with the vagaries of the market, but other times it's to do with um, uh, real improvement or real deterioration in the. In the institutions or the or the backdrop of a specific country, um, you've you know there, there are sort of fairly uh, non-controversial headline examples of that. Um, almost my entire career, Russia's been headed in in uh, in that direction, as we've sadly seen um, uh, uh, sort of epitomised in the last couple of years. Um, but Russia had been heading in that direction for some time. Uh, if you if you looked at the sort of political and institutional backdrop there, um, similarly India, which which is um, uh, almost coming from the other direction of somewhere that um, had uh, consistently sort of under 
um, delivered versus investors' expectations of what it could do. You're, you, you're starting to see you know, improvements in the, in the business environment there. I'm, I'm not a macroeconomic expert, and I, I wouldn't claim to uh, understand in a lot of detail uh, how these how these regions are sort of truly evolving. But at a, at a headline, it's certainly been um, a space as an investor where you've seen large changes. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's the reason why I think it's probably been, you know, I'm still early in my career, but it's probably been a great training ground to see a number of cycles uh, uh, quite quickly, um, which I think are probably, um, it's probably a good way to learn uh, as, as, you're, as you're making your way in this this investing world of ours. Alex, is there a greater need for um, more active management in this space, in the emerging market space? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, this, uh, you know, I think a lot of what I've been talking about highlights that I I really believe, um, you, you used the phrase sorting the wheat from the chaff, but I really think that's important in, in developing countries. There are these huge unaddressed uh, needs and there there are um, entrepreneurs and, and owners and businesses that are that are really seeking to address those needs. But there's there's also huge parts of what you would invest in if you were a passive investor in emerging markets index that don't get close to to actually achieving that. Um, as a, as a result, as as an you know active management is really important because you you want to be aligning yourself with those um, few opportunities that. Um, have really great uh, amplitude and possibilities uh, and avoiding large swathes of the index where, um, you know, they, they, they don't necessarily fit into those uh, categories that I talked about before in terms of being against a, a big growth backdrop, uh, having, having a company that's really trying to provide a solution and being aligned uh, with, with a management team or an owner. And Alex, we've talked about this before, but when you're looking at a company from an ESG perspective, how important is the E, the S and the G? How do you look at them all combined? Yeah, we... we um, so I guess the, the first point to make is that we, we probably don't look at it through a lens where we divide them up that neatly. Uh, like I said, we, we, we're trying to stick to this philosophy that we built that the, and this process that we built that is really, really geared towards solutions providers. Um, and some of those solutions are environmental, uh, but some of those solutions are geared around health. Uh, and some of those solutions, we like to say earth, health and wealth. Uh, some, some of those solutions are environmental, some of those solutions are geared around health, and some of them are geared around um, wealth and financial inclusion, uh, to give you some yeah, there's a, there's a billion people that are unbanked in the world. They're all in emerging markets, and, and I think that you know there's, our key point, pro, our key target is not just environmental, but it, it is these other underserved needs. So environmental is one part of that where where we sort of are hunting, um, and then in terms of uh, social, really that comes out in I mentioned the negative externalities and the stake stakeholder bit. That's something that starts to work its way in as we start to go bottom-up company by company. Um, once you're in a growth opportunity and looking at a company, you then start to think about how that company interacts with the social environment. And then governance really comes, you know, in that last bucket that I talked about where we want to see a company that is uh, reinvesting in trying to 
provide that solution, address that specific need. Uh, but we also want to see a company that, that that's aligned with us as uh, foreign minorities um, trying to bring capital to that opportunity. Thank you very much for everything today, Alex. It's been a fascinating discussion and an exciting place to be, I guess, right now. No, yeah, I, I, uh, I, re- I really think so. Um, no, thank you very much for for giving me the time and, and uh, hope to talk again soon. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Alex Cosler from Newton Investment Management. Thank you.